This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, and credible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we're broadcasting again live from the AAJ Annual Convention in Philadelphia. I have my good friend and great trial lawyer, Michael Leiserman. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, Michael. Thanks for coming on. I just before we get started, I want to say a thank you and a shout out to Law Pods. Law Pods sponsors this podcast. They do our production. They're here. They got the lights and the microphones and headphones and everything for us. They do all the editing. They just make life so easy because all I have to do is talk to you and they do everything else. So if you're thinking about doing your own podcast uh, and don't want to have to learn all the different software and buy all the equipment, I highly recommend Law Pods. I am very impressed with Law Pods right now. So, Michael, you've been on the podcast before. So a little bit of background. You're a trial lawyer, probably one of the best trucking lawyers in the country. Not probably. You are one of the best trucking lawyers in the country. You've got a book. Was it Litigating Truck Accident Cases? Yeah, you got it right. And one of the founders of the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys, one of the founders, if not the founder of the Truck Litigation Group. But on top of all that and all your prior big verdicts, you have a recent $18 million verdict. Yeah. I tried a case in May of this year, 2023 in a federal court in Detroit. It was a case that went on for five years and the clients were very frustrated. I was frustrated for them because we had three different judges and we were delayed by COVID and had multiple trial settings because of all of those different reasons. And finally, five years and a couple of weeks after uh, Tracy and Joe's son, Dylan, died in a car truck crash, they got their day in court. It was a trial that I feel very good about. Yes, because of the verdict numbers, the, the money verdict that the jury gave, and because it was a trial that was healing and cathartic even before the verdict came out for my clients. And that's something that I believe strongly and love to talk about. I do want to talk about the case and your strategy and how you worked it up, but that is so profound. Do you mind if we start there Oh, sure. with the cathartic effect? Because we hear so often, we get all this pressure to settle cases and wrongful death case, these judges and mediators, and sometimes even the other side, like, do you really want to re-traumatize your client and put them through reliving everything that happened? You just got to settle the case because it's just not fair to your client to put them through that. We hear that probably in every case, right? From the mediator, from the judge. Don't re-traumatize. You're exactly right. And I simply disagree with that. I think that it is true sometimes. And I think there's a way in which we can handle our cases throughout and a way we can try our cases that is healing and cathartic. So part of that is an attitude readjustment to have that in mind right from the onset. 
that includes how we talk to our clients from day one. It includes asking them, what are your goals in this case? What do you want from me? Most of the time, people say, I want you to win. I want you to get as much money. But not all the time. Uh, sometimes people say, I want to know what happened. It's killing me to not know exactly this or was the truck driver on the cell phone or whatnot. And then people are afraid. Our clients are afraid of trial, of depositions, if we don't prepare them properly. People hate public speaking. No one wants to expose their life in this very intimate thing, the relationship they had with someone who was killed. They don't know, is, are their personal values going to be attacked or things in their life that they're not so proud of? So to me, it's spending a lot of time with the clients before their deposition talking about the love. And so most of my cases are wrongful death cases. I think this definitely applies in injury cases. It especially applies in wrongful death cases. And I used to talk about it, I think, in a way that was too convoluted. And I'll give my law partner, uh, Andy Young, credit for uh, coming up with a much simpler metaphor. And that's the big balloon. So when I prep clients now, I'll say, well, like in this case, Dylan was the young man who was killed. What was Dylan's favorite color? Oh, he loved red and blue. It's always interesting. To, it was the first time I got two colors. Loved red and blue. Well, yeah. your job in this case is to fill a red and blue balloon with love. Everything you talk about, I want you to fill that balloon. It's still it's so big that the jury and the judge and everyone can't help but see it. And anything that doesn't go to filling that balloon is not important. You weren't there in the crash, and it's a little different if someone was in the car. No, I wasn't there. So the other side is going to ask you questions about his driving habits and did he use his cell phone when he drove and this and that. They're going to ask you in the complaint, you've asked for this or that. In this case, it wasn't punitive damage, but you've pled certain things. What does that mean? You're not there to answer those questions. If they ask you about a time distance analysis and a crash reconstruction, that doesn't fill the balloon. You're not there for that. You hired me and I've got the best people to talk about that. You are here as an expert in your love for your child. You fill that balloon and that's your sole job. And then we'll role play it. So they ask you a question about your complaint says this or that. I don't know anything about that. Ask my lawyers. When they ask you about love and filling the balloon or what you like to do with Dylan, that's what you're an expert on. That's what you talk about and that's all that you talk about. Wow, there alone, people... These clients and all my clients, I'm sure yours too, sigh of breath of relief. Okay, I can do that. That's painful and cathartic, and I can do that. Don't put me in a position where I'm going to embarrass myself because they're going to ask me a legal question I don't know the answer to. And When we go over and over, that's not your job. Your sole job is to fill that balloon. They get it. So we talked about the getting them ready for their deposition. How about the trial itself? How does the trial serve as a healing process? So the first part is the prep once again to remind them because the deposition will have been a while ago. This is just like the deposition. We're filling the, the balloon. It's talking about hope when that applies because I don't believe in putting in hope artificially. Sometimes it's very difficult or maybe they're not at that process yet. But when it's really there, that's great. And to create 
an examination where they have an idea of the vignettes from life that we're going to talk about, but it's not rehearsed. It's going to come out a little different each time, but I, I know generally where I'm going to go. And when you do it like that, what will mostly happen, like in this trial, is the other side will not cross-examine. And once in a while, they will. <laughs> that usually works out pretty well also. So, but to answer even more directly, it's my mindset, because it's a little different in every case. What does it take for it to be healing? Because people need different things to heal. And that heal doesn't mean 100% healed. It just means it's part of a process. It's very important to me to be compassionate. So I wrote, as you know, a book called The Zen Lawyer, and that's about being present. That's about compassion, being a compassionate lawyer. And to me, compassion is a very specific thing. It means wishing well for all beings. Of course, I have a duty to my client first, so I want this to be cathartic for them. I want this to be healing for them. And when possible, I want it to be something that is healing or helpful or certainly not harmful to the defendant, to the judge, to the jury, to everyone involved. And so bringing that mindset, there's a little creativity. How does that manifest in each case? But when you look for it, you'll find it. And in this case was a pretty good example of that with the defendant. And I want to ask about the case, but you said one thing I don't want to forget. So I want to ask you now, you talked about when it's there going into hope. How is there hope in a wrongful death case? Yeah, every case is a little different. And here what's interesting was I explored the hope and didn't end up using it in trial because in the moment it just didn't feel right. And where the hope was, these parents had a very, very close relationship. They're divorced and each one of them individually after the divorce, certainly before that, very close relationship with their son. So it's very difficult for them to literally get out of bed after this happened. And so I would ask them, what did finally get you out of bed? And for them, it was a, um, I don't know if I'd say religious or spiritual, but it was this idea that Dylan was watching them, that they didn't want to let him down. The father talked about it. Dylan was kind of a prankster and he had left a handprint, a glow-in-the-dark handprint on the dad's uh, door when he was alive. And, uh, and now Joe says, that door comes with me if I ever move. That door will be <laughs> yeah. my bedroom door forever. And when I'm feeling down, I, I just put my hand on Dylan's hand and just connect with him. So is there a hope that life is the same again? No, it will never be the same. But a hope for as much as we can hope for, that we keep on living, that we get through it the best we can. So I want to explore that. And it's it's very difficult. I mean, to do our job right really takes digging in with people and asking those hard questions. And once in a while, you'll find it's very hard to find the hope. How do you make the time to spend so many hours with your clients? I handle 10 cases at a time. Okay. How do you, because you can spend hours with somebody and not be present, but if you're not really present, you're not going to get, you don't, you understand what I mean by present. I mean, you need to be fully engaged what they, where they are at rather than trying to push them to say what you want them to say. 
How do you get yourself in that mindset? It's exhausting when you're done with a, a day or half a day. I know well, because I know you do this with your clients as well. So for me, I make sure I get enough sleep. I do that, by the way, before trial, because I've made the mistake of, I know there's always more to do, always more to do. And I've tried a case after going to bed at two in the morning, and I, I won't do that anymore. I, I cut off and get a good night's sleep. I'll also invite other people from the firm. It can be another lawyer, it can be a paralegal. It can, uh, for years I've worked with Joshua Carton, so bring him. Recently, uh, worked with Jesse Wilson. Um, so sometimes bringing in an expert. And part of that, of course, Joshua's brilliant. You can work with other people. Part of it for me is just to give me a little bit of a break because it is hard if you're in your fourth hour working with someone you need to take a break I've, I've also d gone to breaking this into chunks because i find that i'll get myself physically and emotionally ready and my clients need a break yeah so more and more i do this myself and i might meet for three hours and just say okay we're going to do lunch or i'll come back again tomorrow because our clients are not used to just opening up and being this emotionally available and vulnerable. Do you find it makes a difference where you do these meetings? I do. I like to meet initially or the many of uh, the first meetings at the client's house for many reasons. The uh, household's memories. Another something else I'll give Andy Young credit for is uh, he'll say the home is witness. So being in the home, if you see the room, like in this case, in a lot of death cases, that has not been touched. Yep. There's still the same dirty laundry that they'll still have the smells of Dylan in them that they will not move. Maybe some year, maybe not. So those kind of things are very telling. Also, that's where the clients are comfortable. You know, I met once about a year ago with a client at my office because they insisted. But other than that, for over a decade, I don't, I don't meet with clients at the office. They don't know where my office is. I go to their house. I mean, I have clients all over the country, but I go to their house. That's where I want to meet. Now, before the deposition, if it's going to be in our office or some office that I have access to, then I'll bring them there so they're comfortable with the space. And before trial, I definitely want them to have been in the courtroom and uh, been able to, if not sit in the witness stand at least see the courtroom and be familiar with it yeah i think that's just so critical the going to the client's house and it's not i think one big thing is they are more comfortable in their home than they're ever going to be in a lawyer's office but all the little things you see i mean not just the room just what they have on the wall the pictures the you just get a feel i mean trial is about facts but it's also about a transfer of emotion and you have to have an emotion to transfer it and you just get such a feel from being at the house that you just don't get when you meet people in your office. That's absolutely true. The extreme of that story from a long time ago, I like to tell, it's, um, it's a client who invited me to stay at their house overnight. I like to do that when I can. And I was in the basement. This was a young man who was killed, young husband and father. And uh, the daughter, the little girl, also had her, a room in the basement. At about two in the morning, hear screaming so the next morning it's breakfast and i say to the mother you know thank you everything is very comfortable and how is little girl this morning i heard her scream oh 
oh, I'm sorry if that woke you. No, 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 it's no problem. I'm just sorry. You know, ever since her dad died, she uh, wakes up screaming at two in the morning every night. Never did that before. I'm looking at her and she said, oh, I guess that's something would have been helpful to tell you, wouldn't it? And, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, and now I've learned that. Thank you. So that's an extreme. I'm not saying you always have to sleep at your client's house. And I would have never known that hadn't I done that. So it's really caring about your clients and being willing to enter their world, which many times looks very different from yours. All of our little personal worlds are very different entering it. And by doing so, finding the themes that transcend the demographics that so many lawyers think matter and simply don't, the political demographics, the racial demographics, the anything else that can be put into a category is not important to me. So let's talk a little bit about the case. So what happened? Yeah, such a simple question. It's hard to know where to start, right? A young man was killed and his mother and father... Uh, love him dearly and miss him horribly. The way the defense tells the story is that a 21-year-old was uh, on his cell phone speeding and a truck pulls out in front of him. And had he been paying attention and not speeding, he would have been able to avoid striking the truck. The way I told the story was there is a truck that is uh, driven by a worker for Crossfire who's in from out of town doing work on pipes, gas lines in the middle of farm fields. And every day he gets off the same exit where there's a stop sign. There's a little bit of a blocked view to the left because of the way the guardrail is. And every day he pulls up carefully knowing that his view is partially blocked. So he needs to look extra carefully and pause before pulling out to turn left to get to the field where he's working. And he does that every day, Friday, Saturday. They work on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday for seven days until this day, this uh, Friday back in uh, 2018. So that's what the truck driver knows from his prior experience before the day of the crash. And what Dylan Monty, 21 years old, knows is that he drives this route often because it's the route from his girlfriend's house where he spends the night half the time, the other half the time is at his dad's house. And he comes down this road over an, a bridge that crosses the interstate, and there's cars and trucks that pull off the off-ramp. And he sees them pull up from between where the guardrail ends to the fog line this, what I call the full visibility zone. And he sees people roll through it, slow down and stop and let them pass. So on this day, what happens is the truck driver gets off the exit, runs through the stop sign. When he's in the full visibility zone, he's looking to the right. He's not looking to the left and pulls out into traffic. Dylan sees a truck that's slowing down in that shoulder zone like he would have seen so many times before. And usually they stop, but this truck driver at the last moment, instead of stopping, punches, this is his testimony, punches it and lurches out in front of him because he wasn't looking to the left. So 
the truck driver admitted he was responsible, that this would have never happened had he looked to the left, so it never happened had he stopped before entering the intersection, and he admitted that he was a cause of the crash. So what happened in trial was Crossfire's lawyer and his lawyer, the defense lawyer, gets up and says, this truck driver's admitted his fault. This has really affected him. This has ruined his life too. But Dylan did two things wrong. He was on the cell phone and he was speeding. And yeah, we shouldn't have pulled out, but that's one thing. So they did two things wrong. You should find 66 and two-thirds percent against Dylan. We did one thing wrong. It should be one-third against us. And in Michigan law, what would be the effect of that? A zero recovery. And so I called him out on that. I said, they're really paying lip service to being responsible. They come in and they want to say they're responsible and they're a cause. Well, the truck driver does. But they're really not taking any accountability because they want to get off scot-free and pay nothing. So that was one of the themes. The other theme, if I could return to it, was really the idea of love and healing. So the truck driver was at trial. There's no question that this has very much affected his life. Like so many defendants who are involved when there's a wrongful death, whether it's a doctor, a truck driver, another car driver, or whomever, they're human beings and most of them takes a toll on them as well. So the truck driver sits through trial, head hung in just a like depressed presence for the whole trial. And then in, in closing, well, throughout his direct exam and in closing, his lawyer argues, you've seen what the truck driver has gone through. Basically, he's already paid. He, I didn't object, but he used an improper golden rule argument. He said, put yourself in his shoes. Imagine if you'd gone through this. He didn't mean to do this, and he's already suffered enough from this. And so I had to really examine that and do what, what I call being fierce and compassionate. So the fierceness is saying, is calling their bluff, saying, come on, the truck driver is doing the right thing. As a matter of fact, one of the few things they objected to in the whole trial was when I said, well, when you say you were a cause, you'd admit you were most of the cause, right? Objection. They wouldn't let him answer that. Why wouldn't they let him answer that? Because that would have meant yeah. they had to pay something. So it was definitely calling them on that and saying, here's a truck driver who's doing the right thing, but the company won't take any accountability. The second part of this trial that was really most important to me was the compassion for the truck driver. So I thought about doing it when my clients were on the stand, but I thought it would seem contrived, even though it was legitimate genuine from them. So I did it in closing and I talked with them at length about this. So I was able to honestly say to the truck driver, Joe and Tracy forgive you. They know this wasn't intended. They appreciate that you've owned up to your part of this. And they ask you on their behalf, and this is what Dylan would want, get on with your life. I know how this has affected you. Don't make this a double tragedy. I don't know if you'll listen to me or not, or if it sinks in today, or maybe when you're thinking back on this, but please get on with your life. Go live life. 
and then turn to the jury and say, and whatever you do with that, that's not part of your considerations, but we do hope truck driver takes that to heart. And you have to answer these questions on the verdict form. Let's go through them. And we did that. So I'm very much hoping that the truck driver heard that, that he takes that to heart. I don't know how much more I can do and even uh, leave an opening if they want it for the clients and the truck driver to communicate in the future. I don't want to be too pushy on that, but certainly if anyone ever asked me about that, I would, I would help. So did you have any facts other than the refusal to truly accept responsibility that would generate anger towards a trucking company, like, you know, a bad driving record, no training, that kind of stuff. Oh, the opposite. I brought in their good safety record, which has been very interesting because we're waiting for a decision on remitter. They argued, even though they didn't object throughout, that I somehow demonized the company. I called the uh, corporate rep of Crossfire by video designation and played the portions where the corporate representative where I asked him questions about their safety program and the PowerPoints that this safety director had developed. I said, you trained the truck driver on these things. Yeah. And you would expect them to do this and that. Yeah. I've looked at this. I think this is a good safety program. I, I agree with what's in here. You've done a good job. Oh, thank you very much. I made a decision to play that. I'm not sure I can articulate all the reasons why. Um, I definitely wanted to show that we weren't looking to punish the company. And if I try to articulate, it might be more of just coming from a place of fairness because I know, and we did many focus groups, five focus groups and mock trials, that people want to know that. Well, was this a safe company? Did this driver have a bad driving history? And that wasn't the case here. And I wanted to call attention to it and to actually say... <laughs> I said in closing, we're not here to punish. You, you heard that the company was generally a safe company and the truck driver here didn't do what he was supposed to and he needs to be accountable. So it's the opposite of what I think many people think you have to do. Yeah, because we hear so often the, the jury doesn't care about your client. They only care about themselves. You have to make the company a evil, a danger to them to get the jury so mad that they just out of rage or, or self-protect preservation they go and allow this huge verdict, but you did the opposite. Maybe I could have gotten more than 18 million, but I wouldn't want to get it that way. And, and I don't think so, because I think ultimately there's a credibility that matters more than anything. So what was the verdict? Let's kind of put it so the damages were 18 million. What did they do on liability? Liability was 85%, 15%. 85 on the trucking company. Correct. And they broke it down for past, there's no grief allowed in Michigan. So in other jurisdictions I've been, I think this would have been double. Usually the jury will give the same amount for loss of consortium as they do for grief and mental anguish. But here we just had the consortium, which is defined as companionship largely in Michigan. That's what, that's the law that we had. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. 
And now, back to the show. So if you didn't have anger, what do you think motivated the jury to allow $18 million in honoring your client's loss? I think the jury really felt the loss, that we made it palpable. They felt what Crossfire took from this family. And that was by coming up with stories, the direct exams, which were under an hour each, that really spoke to everyone. So it was very interesting. We had a jury. Oh, and this is the first case I've ever tried where I got zero jury selection. Usually you get like a follow-up question or something, but none of that, nothing. Judge picks the jury. We get a jury with a police officer, with an engineer, with two college students, one from University of Alabama, one from Yale, a fabricator, a retired person, a realtor, interesting cross-section of people in the world, different ages, some parents, some had not been parents. So I told the story. It's interesting to rewind a bit. I was worried because the defense had put in as exhibit some Facebook posts, and some of them showed Dylan's room and a derby car, like a smash-up derby, mm-hmm. demolition derby car that was like the Dukes of Hazard with a Confederate flag. And then his room had a similar type of icons that I think some people could be offended by or certainly could divide or, or kind of raise red-blue kind of issues, right? So, and let me back up and say, and they raised issues for me. Right. I had to find ways to get beyond that, to truly fall in love with the family, which I did, and bring that to them. So what that sounded like in trial was talking with Joe and saying, tell me about your relationship with your father. Well, what do you like to do? Love to hunt. I was always his dog. What? I'd, I'd go fetch the... <laughs> The critters until I was old enough to hunt on my own. How old was that? Eight years old. I'll never forget. That's when I could take a hunting safety course. What did you get for Christmas that year, Joe? I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. It was the biggest smile I've ever seen him have. When I opened up my Christmas present, eight years old, it was a 20-gauge shotgun. So I was able to like look at this jury, <laughs> including like the student who's going to Yale, who I think had a very different <laughs> yeah. upbringing from what I could tell. I said, wow, that's my dad was a high school teacher, and that's not how I was raised. And we did different things. And it sounds like that was pretty important to you. Oh, there was nothing better. That was time with dad. And how about when Dylan was born? What do you guys like to do together? Hunt? Fish? Yeah. Safety course? Yep. When he was eight years old, took a safety course. How about Christmas? Oh, yeah. Don't you know it? 20-gauge shotgun. I was so proud of him. (laughs) So I was able to take this thing that, Sounds like you could, some people might say you gave an eight-year-old a shotgun for Christmas. I'm from Texas. That does not sound outrageous. Okay. <laughs> but I understand a lot of people would. Yeah. And this is in Detroit. So there's some people who are out in the country. There's some people from the city. And I was able to just take that and show what was really important was the time together. And there was something that I asked that I fascinated me. I asked Joe, I said, do you think you could have been a better father? He said, no. And I talked about that in closing. I said, I was thinking about that, and it could sound pretty arrogant. Yeah. Because I certainly could be a better father, and I think of failing. And you know what? 
maybe Joe's right. I don't know what more he could have. He had a fishing charter he was getting ready to give to his son. They spent time. But really, what more could he have done? And so I like to talk to a jury to answer all the questions I know they have. Like, why do we have to do this? Why don't we have a chart that says this is how old you are? This is how yeah. many times you texted your parents that month. And here's the value of the case. We don't do that because you, the jury, are the computer. You're the ones that bring common knowledge of this relationship, let's say, versus one where there's an estranged child. And I just can't imagine a closer relationship than this mother and father had with their son. I know that was palpable in the courtroom and the jury felt it and it was reflected in their, in their verdict. I invited the defense, said if, if they disagree with this, you know, suggest some other way to think about it. This is how I think about it. The Michigan law requires you to put a future value for each year for the consortium. And I suggested a million dollars a year. Defense got up and said, of course, don't give anything. You should find two-thirds, one-third fault. And if you do, it's the first time I've had them take me up on it. It should be $250,000 for each parent. But without explanation. And then they ridiculed me saying, Mr. Leeserman spent 40 of his 50 minutes in closing talking about money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Absolutely, I did. And he talked about it for... 10 seconds, $250,000. That's it without explanation. And the jury gave $250,000 per year for the, the rest of each of their lives. I don't know if that number was coincidental that it was the two fifty dollars they asked. And he probably wasn't suggesting two fifty dollars a year, was he? No, no, no. He, he was not. That was their last offer, basically. It was the two fifty dollars per parent per year. So um, it doesn't have to come from anger. The law makes sense. When you think about it, the value of the consortium the value of the companionship which is time together which is love you can actually focus on that it's uh we'll see what happens with the post-trial motions i certainly feel great going into them knowing that i followed the rules i wasn't trying to pull any kind of i don't know get something in to improperly influence the jury we talked about what you're supposed to talk i want to go back to compassion and the compassion you actually had for the truck driver that caused the death how did your compassion influence the way you cross-examined him? Well, it influenced it greatly. Starting with, I asked Joe and Tracy, and this was after we had built a, a trust of working together over time because they wanted to be in the courtroom. And I asked them, could you please sit out in the hallway? And so I started the cross-examination with, I like you. And I want to thank you for owning up to your part of what happened here. And I want to go through exactly what you're owning up to. Let's, let's be specific about that. And I want you to know, I've asked Joe and Tracy to sit out in the hallway. I don't want this to be them staring at you and some kind of psychological game. I want you to feel comfortable just answering the questions. I hadn't done that before. And it just, I was going to have them in there because I wanted him to look at them. And I realized there's part of that that's fair enough. Like they have to live with it. Why not have him look in their eyes? There's part of that that was just didn't feel right to me and wouldn't help him, I don't think. I think it was me trying to, if I had done that, it would be trying to influence him out of guilt. 
And uh, I just didn't feel good about it. I asked him to sit in the hallway. And I, I think it worked very well. It worked because it came from a genuine place. And I think it doesn't hurt that the jury sees, I care. I'm there trying to get to the truth and trying to do it in a fierce and compassionate way. Now, it sounds like you did actually have some comparative fault, legitimate comparative fault. From what I'm hearing, that maybe he was speeding, maybe he was on the cell phone. How did you handle that? Let me start with the cell phone because the uh, second judge we had before she was promoted to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals granted our summary judgment keeping the cell phone out because there wasn't enough evidence. That What the evidence was that everyone agreed to was that when the police officers came, there was a cell phone on the ground. They turned it over and Snapchat was open. There was a Snapchat story. This judge, thankfully, when he got the case, based on some new law in Michigan, reconsidered that decision and set it aside and two weeks before trial, let the cell phone evidence in. Two weeks before. Yeah. I say thankfully, because now there's nothing to appeal. (laughs) (laughs) They would have probably appealed that after I got over my um, initial shock of, oh my goodness, what do I don't want to continue with this again? What's going to happen? Like, okay, let's deal with this. I say thankfully, actually for two reasons. One is, takes away the appellate issue. The other, which is something that blew my mind, is that the last focus group we had done, second to last one we had done, one of the focus group participants started talking about after lunch about Snapchat and the cell phone. I said, what, what are you talking about? Um, we never talked about Snapchat in the focus group or the cell phone at all. I said, well, I just searched on the internet, Monty versus Crossfire, and this came up, this whole thing about Snapchat. I said, let me see that. And I realized, especially in federal court, but in larger states too, where the dockets are online, if you search from Pacer, uh, it's not Pacer because you have to have a subscription, but all these other third-party free services, case finder and case researcher and case law and whatever the different websites are, those aren't the names of them. You pull up the motion that was filed in the judge's order. So if you have a case and you file a motion in limine, assume that juror is going to see it unless you filed it under seal. I realized that we spent the rest of the focus group talking to the focus group participants saying, well, the judge would tell you not to look. And half of them said, I understand that, but I would look anyhow. Yeah. So I was actually considering, should I bring it up anyhow? Because what if there's a good chance that some of them are going to see this? Yeah. So I just dealt with it head on and um, talked about, once again, it's actually looking at the basic jurisprudence. I talked about burden of proof in opening and closing, and they have the burden on this. And I know that that can be a technical thing, and it's more than a technical thing when the jury understands it. We entered in, because it was so last minute, and no one had experts queued up, because it was two weeks before trial, we just worked back and forth to a stipulation that we read to the jury that here's how Snapchat works. When it turned over, the Snapchat story was there. It was posted 12 hours before. And then I was able to say, very honestly, you heard, I don't know, was Dylan on it? It's physically possible that he looked at it at breakfast and then thrown his phone on his chair. That's physically possible too. They have the burden. They can't meet it. That means something. They want to blame him just because he's 21. He must have been on Snapchat. They can't prove it. I think the jury understood that. That's awesome. 
you've tried a lot of cases and you've had some incredible results. What do you think makes a good trial lawyer? Let me rephrase that. What makes a great trial lawyer? What makes a great lawyer, first of all, and definitely trial lawyer, the first thing that comes to my mind is listening. There's so many people say, oh, my niece is such a good arguer. She's always arguing with people. She should become a lawyer. <laughs> well, maybe, but arguing is not what makes a great lawyer. I think listening is one thing. The second is courage. So I kept talking about fierce and compassionate. Having the courage to stand up and uh, be vulnerable, to um, say things that that might counter what popular opinion is, like not to go to the place of anger or whatever it is for you. But I think having the courage to to be there. And most important for trial lawyering especially is presence. And there's a whole lot in that. I think there's courage in that. I think there's self-awareness. There's a certain trust in the moment that things will be okay if I'm not in my head trying to plot the next question, but I can actually be here with the jury, with my client, being a conduit. I believe strongly in presence. You know, I do the um, the trial guides tip of the day. Yeah. And so I get to, like you, interview some amazing lawyer, probably many of the same. And over and over, great trial lawyers say credibility is the most important thing. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and thinking, well, what is credibility, though? So I would say presence is very important. That includes credibility. That includes trust. That includes a willingness to listen. It's, it's all of those things together. So you have a law firm. It's the Law Firm for Truck Safety. Did I get that right? You did. All right. You've gone from kind of being a smaller operation to now having a, a decent-sized firm. What motivated you to want to have a firm? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It was not something I had to do. I was in a place where it was fine to just be leaserman and associates, and I would have done just fine financially and even being in the world doing some of the things I wanted to do. But I couldn't do all the things I wanted to do. And so it started, the law firm for truck safety, my first partner was Andy Young and his, his brother, DJ. And that was largely, was for many reasons. Andy does all trucking, have shared values of compassion. And he is an amazing safety advocate who um, really cares about safety. And I wanted to do more of that. He's been an inspiration to me that way. So I thought, let's partner up. We're also both in Ohio, so it made sense for us to join efforts. He's a wonderful human being and trial lawyer. So he joined up, and then we started talking about, well, who are other people that share our values, who deal with only trucking, who it's important for them to be compassionate and not so I would say fierce and compassionate because you can be compassionate and people can walk over you right. and you don't get good results. So I think it's fierce and compassionate. And uh, then join with Matt Wright in Nashville and Joe Irvin in Oklahoma. There aren't that many people out there that are doing all trucking that are in a situation where we'd want to, where they would want to partner or we'd want to partner. There's certainly some other people I can think of, but it's something we thought about growing slowly and making sure that there were these shared values. So for me, that helps me be in the world in a way where I can help more people, where as a firm, we can help each other do things like 
role pay, play and strategize many of the things we're talking about. So we'll brainstorm all these ideas and I'll get great ideas from them and certainly contribute my ideas as well. So going into your wanting to do good in the world, you're also one of the co-founders of the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys. Tell us not, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are ATA members, but not everybody knows what ATA is. What is ATA and why did you found, found it? Yeah, uh, the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys is a group now of over 1,200 lawyers and paralegals. We're over a thousand lawyers and a couple hundred paralegals who focus on plaintiff's trucking work and don't do insurance defense or trucking defense work. It was important for me to start that organization for a few different reasons. I mean, there's other organizations that are doing some of those things, but not just focused on trucking. Joe Fried and I, who co-founded it, saw an, a need. Well, back when we started it, one of the big motivators was to have a board certification in truck accident law so that it's not just the person that advertises or says there's a truck lawyer. Some of them who advertise are great truck lawyers, maybe questionably so, yeah. but, but to establish a uh, certification that was an objective standard of experience and knowledge that the consumers, the public could rely on. We thought that was very much needed. Apparently it was because we were able to get that push through and the ABA approved that. 2018, we were able to get a push few in just a couple of years, which thought it would be more like a five to 10 year arc. So that was part of it was recognizing that as a specialty area. It also was important to us to be an organization that is concerned about safety advocacy. That's not our primary goal. It's one of our goals. There's other safety advocacy groups out there. So our goals are education and safety advocacy and sharing. So for me, I've been in different organizations that share. And give an example, the AHA's Trucking Litigation Group is an organization that shares. I was the first chair of it, and now it's been over 20 years, and it continues to have leaders who are people who care about sharing. ATA does that, and some things that we, that we do there in addition to that, that we can do, uh, not just because we're a 501c3, but because Joe and I have really... Uh, and other leadership have focused on that. I know I can only help so many, 10 clients at a time. I can help in our firm 50, 60, 70 clients at a time with all the different lawyers. And there's 5,000 people a year killed in truck crashes. Let's say the majority of those are the car's fault. There's still 2,000 people and families a year that deserve the very best representation. So I hope, I know that we have an organization of people who share and help lawyers do the very best they can to help their clients and who are interested in maybe they do it a little differently than I do, but in doing it fiercely and compassionately and trying to leave the world a little safer and better place. One thing that makes me want to be, I mean, I'm blessed to be a part of ATA and makes me feel really good about being part of it. It's not just sharing, but you know, you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast, there's like transactional sharing, like I'm sharing with you because you're giving me something back as opposed to having a, the abundance mentality that I am sharing with you and I wish you well and the universe will take care of me. You don't have to give me something back. You have shared so much with people that will never be in a position to directly give you something back, but you still share. 
I feel like, I say, I feel like I have to. No, I, I don't have to, but I want to. What's the alternative? The alternative would be, and certainly thoughts go through your mind. Thoughts have gone through my mind. Oh, what if we don't start an organization like this? What if we're not sharing so much? Maybe some of the top cases will come to me. Maybe there won't be as many truck accident lawyers in the world. Is that how I want to be in the world? Maybe you have to pay money to go to the Michael Leeserman trucking course. or Yeah. But you're not doing that. Like I was saying, you could, but you're not. And I have a lot of respect for And I also believe that when you go with an attitude of abundance, the universe does take care of you. Because neither you or I are suffering financially because of this mindset. We're doing very well. And some people would say it's education-based marketing. I think it's beyond that. I agree and i think of uh rena my wife and law partner has really taught me that the idea of abundance mentality there's enough there for everyone and by sharing you share not because it might come back you share because you want to share and make the world a better place and what's amazing is it usually does come back it does and even there is a facet to, let's be honest to education-based marketing but what it is is if you truly share everything you know and you're happy for somebody if they do it on their own, then when it's the right case where you do add value to them, they're going to go to you, not someone else that says you have to bring me in or I won't let you know my secrets. Like there are any real secrets here. I mean, work hard, love your client, be brave. I mean, it's not, these aren't things that we have like in a hidden safe somewhere. It, absolutely. And look, I'm very human and it's taken the decades to shift my mindset so that in the past, I remember, one of the first times, maybe the first time someone said to me, oh, thank you. I used your closing argument. I think it was on damages in a wrongful death case and just got a $30 million verdict. Thank you so much. And the first time I heard that, there was a part of me that wanted to make like a smart aleck comment. Like, oh, yeah, where's my referral? Like, oh, that's <laughs> nice. Why didn't you bring me in? I'm glad yeah. I could help you. And that's just acknowledging like part of me that part of me that can be greedy, part of me that wants more. Yeah. And by recognizing that, part of me to really think about that and feel that. And now I really feel not a hundred percent, 99.9% when I hear that, I truly, truly thrilled. Michael, you got another huge verdict. I'm so happy for you and your client for real. Right. Yeah. You didn't bring me in. That's okay. Good. I got enough. Like, that's fine. I'm really thrilled. So that's been a process for me. And I, I do feel that way. I know you do too. To me, the true growth is when you can be happy that one of your referring lawyers got a verdict without you. <laughs> that would be the ultimate growth where you've proven that you have true abundance. I'm 95% of the way there. I'm not going to lie and say I'm 100%, but I'm, I'm getting there. It's a process. It's not like we reach a state of enlightenment and stay there. It's why I meditate every morning. It's a process to every day remind myself I'm grateful to be alive. I'm so lucky for what I have. Yes, I've worked for it, but there's a lot of people who work really hard who don't have the material or other success that you and I have. So every day I sit, I'm grateful to be alive, and I think about what can I do today to help reduce suffering in the world, to help do good, to help best represent my clients. And I include myself in that because for a long time I didn't, and also to make this fun and to reduce suffering in my life. Absolutely. Well, you have done a lot of good in my life and I appreciate it. And I hope that everyone listening got something out of it. Please join us. ATAA is having our annual symposium in Atlanta this year, September 
I believe, 27th to 29th. So if you do trucking, you're thinking about doing trucking and you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you really ought to sign up, academy at truckactionattorneys.org. And can I plug uh, my Zen lawyer? Oh, absolutely. That's also been life-changing for me and really helped me break through some of my own blocks that were keeping me from being fully present in the courtroom. So please. That's nice. Thank you for saying that. Joshua Carton, trial consultant extraordinaire, uh, Rinsen Roshi, a Zen master and six degree black belt in Aikido. And myself have been teaching this now for, this will be the ninth year. And it's a little different format now than when you went through it uh, because it's now being held at the Zen temple in Toledo. It's in October. Don't have the dates offhand, but you can go to the zenlawyer.com. It'll also be in the show notes. Great. Uh, my notes in October this year, and we've changed it to not just a workshop, but a workshop and retreat. So what that means is people stay at the temple and bunks. Um, there's a hotel option if people are really opposed to it. But last year, some people thought they wanted to stay at the hotel, ended up in the bunks. We have a lot of fun the first night, a little party, get to know each other. And then after that, we still have fun and it's a retreat. So lights out at 930, everyone gets a full night's sleep. There's a morning bell that wakes everyone up and it's a silent retreat largely. I mean, we certainly do work getting up and practicing presence and opening and talk about trial skills. But there's, uh, for example, no cell phones, no drinking. And I know a lot of people need to check email, right? So we've actually developed, we have lunch together. We have a rest period where everyone rests. And then we do a group email practice. Everyone open your email from a place of being grounded and centered, from a place of compassion, read the email, respond to it, giving the other side or whoever you're writing to come from a place of compassion, give them the benefit of the doubt, write your email, take a breath, read your next email. And we'll sit around for 30 or 60 minutes and do that together in silence. And it's really, people are reporting. And for me, it's life-changing. It's very important to me to integrate. It's not like I can be a good person when I come home, but life is so stressful. Everyone always asks about this work-life balance. And I know we're at the end of our program, but I would just say that I believe they can and for me do coexist, that we can hold these values through the work we do. We can be champions and advocates for our clients while still being compassionate. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. 
This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.